One of the most beautiful places on this planet is the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. Frankly, it's my favorite place in all of Israel. And if I were ever to live in Israel, that's where I would choose to live. And I'm not alone in my estimate of this gorgeous area. The ancient rabbis were so impressed with this inland lake, and that's what it really is, not actually a sea. It's an inland lake that they used to say this, and I quote, Jehovah has created seven seas, but the Sea of Galilee is his delight. But I want you to know as beautiful and as magnificent as the Sea of Galilee is, due to its unique geography, it can also be, frankly, a treacherous place. You see, although the Sea of Galilee, it's only 13 miles long, it's, it's eight miles wide, it's also 630 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by high hills and very narrow valleys. And what this means is that without any warning, winds can, can come down from those hills, and, and as they sweep through those very narrow valleys, they function then as wind tunnels, bringing instant downdrafts upon the sea that can whip the waters up to a raging, fierce, violent storm. And in Luke chapter 8, our study this morning, we're told about one of those violent storms occurring while Jesus and his disciples were in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Here's what we read in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Now, on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out, but as they were sailing along, he fell asleep and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. And they came to Jesus and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we're, we're perishing. And he got up and he rebuked the wind and the surging waves and they stopped and it became calm. And he said to them, where's your faith? They were fearful and amazed saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Now, this story is found in three of the four New Testament gospel accounts. It's recorded in both Matthew and Mark, as well as here in Luke. However, only Luke presents this story without telling us the time setting. The time setting as to when this incident actually took place. Notice how Luke states this at the beginning of verse 22. He says, now, on one of those days... Now, the wording, in wording it this way, Luke is making it clear to us that his purpose in telling this story isn't related to what just happened chronologically. He's not concerned about what happened prior to this event. Otherwise, he would have told us this. And this isn't really unusual for Luke because he often presents his material out of sequential chronological order, choosing instead to arrange his material along the lines of a theme or or a topic or a subject. And that's exactly what he does here in telling us about this incident in which Jesus calmed a violent storm while on the sea of Galilee. As you recall, starting with verse 4 of this chapter, chapter 8, Luke told us about the parable Jesus gave of a sower or a farmer who threw his seed upon the various soils that that made up his field. And then he followed this story, this parable, by the Lord's explanation to his disciples as to the meaning, the interpretation of this parable. They came to him, as you'll recall, and they said, explain to us what this means, and he did. Then the Lord immediately told his disciples, as we saw last Sunday, that as his followers, they had a responsibility to spread the seed of the word, the seed of the word of God, specifically the gospel message, just like the the sower did by making sure, now he switches metaphors, by making sure that they gave forth the light of the gospel so that it must never be hidden, it must never be concealed. He said, now no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in, meaning those who come in the house, may see the light. And then the Lord declared as to why they, as his disciples, must do this. Why they must let the light about him out so that others see it, others hear it. So the point he was making to these men, these disciples, 
is that they are to proclaim his word. They are to be faithful to proclaim the gospel. Folks, this is a large part of being one of Christ's followers, of being one of his disciples. Every believer in Jesus has been commanded by their Lord to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Christ. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there because not only are his disciples to proclaim the word of God, they also, note this, must believe the word of God. They must have confidence in the word of God that it is trustworthy. It is totally reliable. It will accomplish exactly what he sends it forth to accomplish. And so as Luke continues his gospel narrative in chapter 8, he inserts this story of Jesus calming a storm on the Sea of Galilee, not only to tell us important truths about Christ's character, specifically his humanity as well as his deity, but also Also to show us how Jesus taught these men, his disciples, what it means to trust him, what it means to believe on him, what it means to have confidence in his word that his word will always come to pass and they can trust his faithfulness. You see, at this point in their lives, our Lord's initial first disciples, they were weak in their faith. They were certainly dedicated to him. They were basically obedient to him. But their faith, though, was small. It was, it was weak, and it needed to be enlarged. It needed to be strengthened. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do here and why Jesus, in his sovereign ordering of events, allowed this incident, this storm, to come up on the Sea of Galilee. And why Luke placed it here, strategically placed it here, in chapter 8 of his gospel narrative. It was to enlarge. It was to strengthen the faith of his disciples. And you can easily see this. You can see that this is the primary lesson of this miracle because in verse 25, right after Jesus calmed the storm, notice what he said to his disciples right at the beginning of this verse. Where is your faith? Where's your faith? You see, stretching their faith, that's the lesson that Jesus was teaching them because what they needed to learn was that it is not enough to proclaim his word. True disciples must also believe his word. Here's what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this incident on the Sea of Galilee and why it is so applicable to us. He said this, in this case, there can be no doubt that the lesson with regard to the disciples and their condition at this point is the great lesson concerning faith and the nature or the character of faith. I do not know what you feel, but I never cease to be grateful to these disciples. I'm grateful for the record of every mistake they ever made and for every blunder they ever committed because I see myself in them. How grateful we should be to God that we have these scriptures. How grateful to him that he has not merely given us the gospel and left it at that. How wonderful it is that we can read accounts like this and see ourselves depicted in them and how grateful we should be to God that it is a divinely inspired word which speaks the truth and shows and pictures every human frailty. Folks, that's why this story in particular is so relevant. It's so important to us, for us, because though most of us here today would claim to be Christ's disciples, like his first disciples though, sometimes our faith is very weak. It's wavering. It needs to be assured not only of his power and his authority over everything in life, but also that he cares about us as we go through our own personal storms in life. You see, this passage of Scripture is intended not only to teach us that Christ has the power to overcome all things, even the very course of nature, but also that as his followers, we need to learn that he can be trusted during those difficult times in life when circumstances just seem to overwhelm us. And Luke's going to help us. Luke is going to help us to learn to trust the Lord by revealing how Jesus taught these disciples a critical lesson about trusting him. So it's important for us to understand the purpose, the message of these verses is not only to present the omnipotent power of Christ, it certainly is part of it, but also it's to stretch our faith, the faith of those of us who are presently in Christ's school of discipleship by teaching us that he can be trusted in the storms of life, both the physical storms and the figurative storms. You see, this is one of those very special 
passages in the Bible that it's just so necessary for us to be familiar with and to understand because it helps us not only to understand why as believers we have to experience trials and difficulties, but it also teaches us how God wants us to respond to those trials and those difficulties, and he wants us to respond by faith in him. So today, as we follow Luke's line of thinking and presenting Christ's power to calm a storm on the Sea of Galilee as well as the storm that was raging in the hearts of his disciples, we see two important truths about our Lord's power and the storms of life as they relate to us, his followers, his disciples. That first truth being this, his disciples experience storms. They're inevitable. Verse 22, now on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. Now, as I mentioned to you just a few moments ago, Luke doesn't tell us when this incident took place in the ministry of Christ. He simply begins telling us about this incident by saying that on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat. However, both Matthew and Mark in their gospel narratives, they reveal that this event took place right after Jesus had finished a very full day of teaching parables to the large crowd of people who had come to hear him, as well as giving his disciples private instruction, explaining to them the meaning of these parables. In fact, Mark states that this took place going across the sea on boats. It took place at nighttime. This was after a very busy day of teaching that it had ended. We read in Mark 4.35, On that day when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. So it was nighttime. It was evening. It was the end of a very full day of our Lord teaching. And that helps to explain why in the very next verse, we're told that Jesus fell asleep while on the boat. It's because he was exhausted. He was exhausted from a jam-packed day of ministry. And so as nighttime fell, Jesus instructed his disciples to join him in getting into a boat and going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which would have been the eastern side of the lake since they were presently in the town of Capernaum, which is on the northwestern shore of the lake. And the reason for traveling to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, as we'll learn later in the next passage, is because Jesus was going to minister there to a demon-possessed man who lived in that vicinity on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, Luke tells us that it was our Lord's disciples who were with him in this boat. So, who exactly were these men? Well, we know that they were disciples, but which disciples? Well, we know that this group of followers certainly included the twelve who became his apostles, but it is very likely, highly likely, that there were more disciples on that trip than just the 12. And I say that because in Mark's gospel, we're told that there were several boats that traveled together on this journey across the Sea of Galilee. So the composite picture that we're given from several New Testament accounts of this incident is that sometime after dark, As evening fell, Jesus and his followers got into several small fishing boats and began to sail from the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And why did these men, these disciples of his, why did they do this? Well, simply because Jesus told them to do this. See, that's what a disciple does. The word disciple means a learner, a student, a pupil, but it also involves that he not only learns from his teacher, but he actually obeys and follows his teacher. In this case, is their rabbi. And in this case, it seemed like a very good thing to do because this would allow them the opportunity to catch a little break, a little respite from the large crowds that kept pressing in upon Jesus and upon them. And so from the perspective of these disciples, Jesus is simply leading them to the other side of the lake to give them some breathing room from all the people who had crowded them in Capernaum. However, as the story unfolds, we see that the Lord was leading them into a storm. Verse 23, but as they were sailing along, he fell asleep and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake 
and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. Now Luke tells us two specific things that happened as Jesus and his disciples were sailing across the Sea of Galilee. First thing he tells us is that while they were sailing, Jesus fell asleep. This is the only place in the Gospels where we read about Jesus sleeping, the only place. But as we learned earlier, he was just so exhausted from the long day's work of ministry that he left the navigation to the disciples, found a place to relax in the stern of the boat, resting on a cushion. We know that because Mark tells us that. And he just fell asleep. He was what we would call today bone-tired, just exhausted, just drained, bone-tired, And what this affirms to us theologically is that while Jesus is fully God, he's also fully man. He's also fully human. This is why we read in the New Testament that he experienced everything that a human being experiences except sin. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He experienced fatigue. And here in Luke chapter 8, we read that he experienced, like we all do, the need to sleep after a long, exhausting day of hard work. And sleep he did. In fact, folks, it was such a a deep, sound sleep that as we'll soon see, not even, even the tossing of the boat just up and down in the waters or the howling winds or the waves drenching him with water woke him up. This is a sound sleep from exhaustion. And what a great picture of Christ's unwavering trust in his heavenly Father, sound asleep, not at all worried, peaceful, at rest in the will of God, even though a violent storm was coming. And the storm, that's the second thing that Luke tells us that happened during this trip across the Sea of Galilee. He says, and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. Now, as I mentioned to you earlier, it is not unusual for the Sea of Galilee to be calm one moment and then immediately, without warning, erupt into a forceful storm. Michelle and I had just just a small taste of this the very first time we visited Israel while we were on a boat sailing across the Sea of Galilee during what really started out as a very pleasant day, a very nice day, a little storm just came out of nowhere with some very strong wind gusts. But what the disciples experienced here wasn't a little storm. Matthew calls it a great storm. And the specific word that Matthew uses for storm literally means shaking or vibrating. It is the same word used in other places in Scripture to refer to an earthquake. In other words, this storm, this storm was so great that it was like a sea quake in which the water in the sea shook as if it were a glass of water in the hands of a giant. And Luke says that a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake, meaning that the wind was like the force of a hurricane wind. This storm was so fierce, it was so violent that we're told in Matthew's account that the boat was covered with the waves. And Mark tells us that the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up filling up with water. In other words, the waters covered the boats in continuous, just unrelenting, wave after wave. One Bible teacher explained the scene this way. He said, it was as though the lake was being shaken. As the ship reeled, dark mountains of water on port and starboard rose and washed over the boat. Anyone who's been in a storm and has felt the stern plunge like an elevator in the trough of a rising, welling mountain of green and then shot toward the sky like a monster roller coaster can imagine their misery. Now, without denying the literal reality of this physical storm, I don't think it's a stretch to say that every Christian should understand that trials in the form of storms come into our lives even when we obey God. You see, we sometimes, we tend to see adversity only as God's discipline in the lives of those who are disobedient and rebellious to him. Like the storm Jonah experienced because he fled in disobedience. He fled to Tarshish rather than going to Nineveh. But in this case, That's not true. The disciples were caught in this storm because they did obey Jesus and not because of any sin they had committed. The Lord had specifically told them to get into the boat and go across the lake. It wasn't their idea at all. It was his and they were just following his orders. 
Listen, folks, there's a very important truth about the Christian life here, and it's a truth we learn from these verses, and that is that difficulties are not reserved for disobedient believers. Every true follower of Christ, without exception, goes through adversity and storms, even the most mature and godly disciples. And the reason for this is because in Christ's school of discipleship, there are valuable lessons that can be learned only in the storms of life. And one of those key truths that we learn is just how weak we are and how powerful God is and therefore how much we need to trust Him. You see, storms, though certainly not pleasant to go through, they are good for our spiritual development because they force us, they literally force us to lean on the Lord and to look to Him for deliverance and help. One of the great lessons we learn in Christ's school of discipleship is that the Lord often puts us in situations that have absolutely no human solutions. And He does this in order to bring us to the point of absolute desperation so that we'll do what? So that we'll rely on Him and Him alone. This, this was certainly the Apostle Paul's experience as he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. We read this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul thought he was going to die. That's what he's saying. We despaired that we'd ever get out of that situation alive. He follows up by saying, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul said, I was sure that I was going to die. But this next sentence is precious. But that was, that was what, Paul? That was that God put us in this situation. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul said, God put us in this situation so that we would see we have no reliance upon ourselves. We have no human solutions. All of my ingenuity, all of my resources couldn't get me out of this. We had to rely on God who is so powerful that he even raises people from the dead. This is why we went through this. So if you're going through one of those storms right now where you just have no idea how to solve your problem, then understand this. Understand that's exactly where God wants you to be because he has some important lessons for you to learn about him. And it's during those storms when we just seem to be more attentive. This is exactly where he wanted the disciples to be. So he could teach them the great lesson of trusting him, trusting his power, trusting his heart of compassion. Think about how horrible their circumstances were. Out at night on the dark sea, I've looked at the Sea of Galilee at night. It is a dark, dark place. There are no lights all around. They were out at night on the dark sea. They were being violently shaken by the wind, huge waves crashing over their boats. What terrible circumstances. Even though they were experienced fishermen, most of them at least, they had no human solutions for their dilemma at sea. They needed help beyond themselves. They needed Jesus. And where was Jesus? Well, as you know, he was sleeping. Despite the howling wind, the constant waves crashing Upon and against the boat, the wet spray hitting him, Jesus was fast asleep. Again, I say, what a great picture of our Lord's trust in his heavenly Father. Sound asleep, not at all anxious, not at all worried, peaceful at rest in the will of God. But that wasn't at all the disciples' attitude. Instead of trusting in God's sovereign care, these men began to panic And so, as we continue reading Luke's narrative, we read that they woke Jesus up. The first part of verse 24 said, they came to Jesus and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. Now, it's no exaggeration to say that these men were panic-stricken, that they were terrified. They were petrified that they were going to die by drowning. And We just see how petrified, how scared they were by looking at the three gospel accounts that record this incident because each of these gospel accounts, they tell us something just a little bit different so that when we put it all together, we have a very full and complete picture of the sheer terror that had overtaken these men. 
John MacArthur, in his commentary on Luke, explains the situation. He writes this. He said, the disciples were panic-stricken. Since many of them were fishermen used to the lake and its treacherous weather, they understood how strong a storm their boats could endure and knew that their survival was threatened by this one. Desperate and terrified, fearing for their lives, they came to Jesus and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. Matthew's account says that they called Jesus Lord, while Mark notes that they addressed him as teacher. Far from being contradictory, as some skeptics imagine, the gospel writers' accounts accurately reflect the chaos and confusion that reigned on that stormy night. This was no orderly, organized delegation calmly presenting their petitions to Jesus, but rather a panicked mob facing imminent death. Some, thus some cried out, Lord, some teacher, and others master. Now, in the midst of their anxiety, Luke only says that the disciples woke Jesus up from this deep sleep that he was in. But Mark... Mark reveals in his accounts of this incident that that more than simply wake Jesus up, Mark tells us they actually rebuked the Lord for his apparent indifference to their crisis. Mark 4.38 says, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? In other words, Lord, don't you care that we're about to drown? Now, the disciples were absolutely wrong to rebuke the Lord. They were absolutely wrong to question his concern for them. But we can certainly understand them doing this. Why? Because we're often guilty of doing the very same thing. At times when we're going through a severe trial, we are prone to wonder along the very same lines, Lord, where are you? Where are you? Don't you care about my suffering, what I'm going through? You seem to be uninterested. You seem to be asleep. While you know I'm deeply hurting, you know that I'm in severe pain, where are you? Listen, when you're going through one of those intense storms of life, it is easy to feel very alone and to wonder if God is oblivious to your pain. Those are the times when it appears that God is doing nothing, when it feels as if he's dozing off, as if he's uncaring about you. And that's exactly how these disciples felt. Lord, why are you sleeping when we're about to drown? You should be up. You should be doing something. Now, if that's been your attitude towards the Lord, though it is always wrong to have that kind of a mindset towards him because it is sinful, since he's perfect, he's never wrong, he's not capable of doing anything wrong, you can at least take some encouragement in knowing that you aren't the only one who's ever felt this way. Even the most godly, the most mature Christians at times have lost sight of God's care and love, and they have accused the Lord of being apathetic to their plight. For example, the great King David, a man after God's own heart, said these words in Psalm 10, verse 1, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In other words, there are unjust things happening all around, Lord, but you seem to be uninterested and not available to help at all. Again, we read in Psalm 44, verses 22 through 24. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? And here in this incident of this horrific storm on the Sea of Galilee, the Lord's own disciples, his closest followers, his closest friends, they wondered the same thing. Where was Jesus and why was Jesus sleeping while they were in danger of drowning? Now, that's a very valid question and one that if we have not articulated that question verbally, it's very likely that we've at least had that thought cross our minds Why does the Lord lead us into difficulties and then let those difficulties continue to the point where it appears that he doesn't care as if he is asleep? Listen closely. He does it for the same reason that Jesus led his disciples into this fierce storm. He does it to teach you to live by faith in him. And this becomes apparent as we continue reading these verses and we discover what happened next. And as we do, 
we see the second great truth that Luke teaches us about Christ's power and the storms of life as it relates to disciples. The first truth being this. His disciples experience storms. They are inevitable. And now we see the second truth, which is this. His disciples need to trust him during those inevitable storms. The second part of verse 24 reads this way. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped and it became calm. Now Luke tells us that after being awakened, Jesus rebuked the wind, he rebuked the surging waves, with the result being that the Sea of Galilee now became perfectly still and calm. Now folks, this indeed is an amazing miracle, but it's really more than a miracle. It's a double miracle. See, normally after the winds of a storm die down, the waves continue to roll and then begin to subside gradually. That's how it normally is. However, in this case, both the winds and the waves, they stopped immediately. As one Bible teacher so graphically put it, he said, there was an eerie silence as if a great hand had brushed away the wind and pressed down the sea. You see, hearing these words from the Creator, nature immediately obeyed, and there was a calm stillness once again on the Sea of Galilee. The same Creator who spoke the world into existence now stopped the storm with a word. And having calmed the storm, Jesus then turned to his disciples in order to calm their fear-filled hearts. And he did this by addressing their real problem, their root problem, and the reason they were so terrified. Here's what we read at the beginning of verse 25. He said to them, where is your faith? Now Luke tells us that the very first thing that Jesus did upon being awakened from sleep and then calming the storm was to scold these men. That's what he's doing. He's scolding them. He's scolding them, but not for waking him up from a very sound sleep, but for being so fearful because they had such small, undersized faith. He said, where's your faith? Now notice that Jesus didn't say that they had no faith. After all, as his disciples, they were believers in him and they were believers in him because he had given them faith to believe. Everyone who believes on Christ has been given faith as a gift. It doesn't stem from us. It's his gift to us. So these men had faith, but their faith was small. Their faith was weak. It was shallow. And they had not applied their faith to this situation. And so what the Lord is saying to them is, you who say you believe in me, You who say you're my followers, where's your faith in me? I've given you faith, so where is it? Instead of accusing me of not caring about you, you need to apply the faith that I've already given you and trust me. Now, it's interesting that the storm didn't seem to disturb Jesus, but the disciples' small faith bothered him, and that's why he chided them, and rightfully so. Listen, the disciples, they weren't wrong for waking Jesus up and turning to him for help. That was absolutely the right thing to do, just as turning to him in prayer is the right thing for us to do when we're going through a crisis. That would absolutely be the thing to do. But these men were wrong in accusing him of not caring about them because he did care about them. You see, the problem wasn't with the Lord. It never is because he's perfect in every way. He's perfect in his holiness, his love, his sovereignty, his grace, his compassion, his wisdom. Everything about him is perfect. The problem was with his disciples. They were afraid and they panicked because their faith was just weak. And dear friends, that's often so true of us as well. Whenever we go through a storm and question God's care, God's concern for us, It only reveals just how small and weak our faith really is. See, the way to handle a storm like this isn't by panicking or by doubting God's love and interest in you, but rather it is to trust his word that he does love you and he does care about you, even when you don't understand what's going on. And the reasons you can trust his loving care, his interest in you during one of life's painful storms They're the very same reasons that the disciples here should have placed their trust in the Lord during their personal storm at sea. First of all, 
these men should have trusted him to care for them during the storm because why because they had his word they had his promise that they were going to the other side of the lake he had told them that I remind you what Jesus said to them back in verse 22 let us go over to the other side of the lake and Matthew's account the point is even made more emphatic as he records these specific words from Jesus he gave orders to depart to the other side You see, if Jesus gave them orders that were going to the other side, then regardless of how bad things looked, they should have trusted him because they had his word for it, that they were going to make it to the other side. They should have just trusted his word, even if they didn't know how he was going to pull this off. This is why Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5 exhorts all of us to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and not to lean on our own understanding. The disciples, they didn't need to know how Jesus was going to bring them to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. His word that they were going there, that was and should have been sufficient for them. They just needed to trust him that he would fulfill his word to them. Now, obviously, you and I don't have a specific promise in the Bible that we're always going to physically survive every storm in our lives. But we do have other promises. We have his promise, his word that he will sustain us, that he will strengthen us, that he'll always give us grace in every storm we go through. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, here's what his promise is. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you'll be able to endure it. You have God's word for it. We have his promise in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Though given to the Apostle Paul, it is certainly applicable for all believers where Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. We're weak, he's powerful, his grace is sufficient for us. Again, we have his promise that every one of our trials will benefit us spiritually by making us more like Christ in our character. Romans 8, 28 and 29, these magnificent words, and we know, we don't always feel this, we don't always understand this, but we know this by faith, that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. We're being made into the likeness of Christ through our trials. Now the second reason the disciples should not have been afraid, but should have demonstrated strong, firm faith in the Lord to care for them was because they already had seen many demonstrations of his compassionate heart at work. Remember, these are the men who had witnessed Jesus perform some amazing miracles of healing. They knew how compassionate and merciful and caring he was. They saw it. They were there when he placed his hand, literally placed his hand on a leper. They saw his tenderness and the way he healed so many hurting people. They witnessed his loving concern for the multitude so that they not only saw how his compassion drove him to physically heal them, but they also saw out of his love and concern for the multitudes how he just exhausted himself by teaching them. Teaching them so much, so many hours that it just wore him out. That's why he fell asleep on the boat. He was completely drained from his ministry of compassion. So having observed so many displays of of his merciful, compassionate heart, why in the world did these men doubt that he cared for them? Well, the reason they doubted is because as someone has so wisely observed, in their fear they had abandoned all spiritual logic. In their fear they had abandoned all spiritual logic. And folks, that's exactly what we do. Every time we give in to fear and are untrusting of the Lord, we abandon any spiritual logic by failing to remember how compassionate Christ has been to us in the past. We fail to remember how he's brought us through so many past storms and trials when we had no idea how we were going to make it, and yet we did because he was faithful. 
faithful. This is why it's so helpful to keep some type of a journal or a diary of God's dealings with you because during those difficult times of life, you can look back and you can review his past dealings with you and you realize how faithful he's been to you. This is the way you strengthen your faith knowing that he will be faithful again to you as you go through your present crisis. This is precisely what the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk did. The book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament is just a brief three chapters long. In chapter one of his book, Habakkuk complains to God. He complains to God because it appears that God doesn't care about Israel as they're about to be brutally attacked by an evil nation. So some things haven't changed. Then in chapter two of his book, God tells Habakkuk to live by faith with these words that echo throughout the Bible, the just shall live by faith. That's what he tells Habakkuk. Then in chapter 3, he strengthens the faith of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk strengthens his own faith as God points him to rehearsing God's past dealings with Israel. And as Habakkuk does this, and he thinks back and remembers how God in years past has been so faithful to deliver Israel, he does this until he becomes so strong, so stable in his confidence in the Lord that he closes his book with these magnificent words of faith. Here's how the book closes. This man who started out by complaining to the Lord, you don't seem to care, you know, this is how he ends the book. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, remember it's an agricultural society, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. Yet, yet, even with all this, I will exult in the Lord. I'll rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet, and makes me walk on my high places. So even though Habakkuk's circumstances hadn't changed, and Israel's circumstances hadn't changed, the other nation was still going to come in and invade them, Habakkuk changed. God changed Habakkuk. He was changed from someone who was doubting and complaining to a man now who was determined to trust the Lord even under the worst of circumstances. But the greatest demonstration, the highest, the most magnificent, the one that ends all arguments of God's compassion and mercy to us is the cross of Jesus Christ. We read these these wonderful words in Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the end of the argument. You wonder, where is God? Does he love you? There should be no doubt of his love and concern for you because the cross forever proves his love and mercy for you. Now, this was the great lesson that Jesus was teaching his disciples. They had this small faith that needed to be enlarged. And the way to enlarge their faith was by them applying their faith to this particular bad situation. It was by exercising their faith in the midst of the storm, by trusting God's word and Christ's heart of compassion. And that's exactly how you and I are to enlarge our faith we have to, and this is the key, we have to apply our faith to every and any situation regardless of how bad the circumstances might be. Knowing what you know to be true about God, you then by an act of your will, you exercise your faith in him. You don't focus on what you don't know. You focus on what you do know about him. Concerning the necessity of applying our faith as we go through a severe trial, once again, Dr. Lloyd-Jones wrote these very masterful and very encouraging words in his book, Spiritual Depression. If you have not purchased and read that book, I can't recommend it highly enough. Spiritual Depression by Lloyd-Jones. You can buy it on Amazon. It is a book that you need to read. Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, that is the way faith works, but you and I must exercise it. It does not come into operation automatically. You have to focus your faith on to events and say, all right, but I know this about God and because that is true, I am going to apply it to this situation. 
This, therefore, cannot be what I think it is. It must have some other explanation. And you end by seeing that it is God's gracious purpose for you. And having applied your faith, you then hold on. You just refuse to be moved. The enemy will come and attack you. The water will seem to be pouring into the boat. But you say, it's all right. Let the worst come to the worst. You stand on your faith. You say to yourself, I believe this. I am resting on this. I am certain of this. And though I do not understand what is happening to me, I am holding on to this. And by this he means the truth that you know about God. And so having calmed the sea and calmed the fear of the disciples that they were going to die, what was the disciples' response to all of this? What was their reaction? Well, Luke tells us their response as verse 25 continues. He says they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Instead of being so relieved that Jesus had just saved them from drowning, that they profusely thanked him and had a a little time of celebrating on the boats, we read that these men instead were fearful and they were amazed. Previously, they had been fearful of the storm. Now they were fearful of something else. Suddenly, suddenly they were terrified again because it now dawned on them for the first time that the one who was with them in the boat was more powerful than the storm they had just been rescued from. And out of their fear arose this question, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Although they said these words in the form of a question, they already knew the answer. They knew the answer. Remember who these men were? They were Jewish men, raised on the Old Testament scriptures. They understood that only God could calm the seas by his spoken word. They knew Psalm 89 verse 9 where the psalmist talks to God and says, you rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. They knew Psalm 106 verse 9. He rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. You see, instantly our Lord's disciples understood what kind of a man was in their boat. Logic demanded that they connected the dots. The one standing in their boat, the one who had just rebuked the winds and the sea was none other than God Almighty, the creator, the king of the universe. I love what theologian William Hendrickson wrote about this. He said, much that is wrong on earth can be corrected, but it takes deity to change the weather. It's good. And that's exactly, exactly the case and precisely what the New Testament teaches and affirms many times that Jesus Christ is none other than God in human flesh, the one who created all things. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Let me read this slowly so that it grips your heart. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He is the Creator. But in seeing the truth about the deity of Jesus in the story, I don't want you to miss the main lesson that Christ had for his disciples and for us as his present-day disciples. If Jesus has the power and the authority to handle a physical storm, don't you think that he can handle any storm that you're going through or any storm that you will go through? Of course he can. And that is the point. He's the sovereign king of the universe. And therefore, you can trust him. You can trust him to calm every storm and give you his grace in any difficulty you might ever face. As that wonderful song, Be Still My Soul, reminds us, Be still my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake all now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. And the Lord's disciples certainly had faith, even though it was small, even though it was weak, 
even though it was shallow, it was genuine faith. The question is, do you have faith? Do you have saving faith in Christ? Have you ever believed on him for salvation? Have you repented of your sin and placed your trust in him? That's the question. Have you ever trusted his death and his death alone as the sole basis for your salvation? If not, then I urge you, make today the day of your salvation. Call upon him to save your soul. There's no other way to be forgiven. There is no other way to be rescued from hell. If you'd like to speak to someone about this and just see me at the end of the service, some of our leaders will be up here and we'll be happy to help you. If you have trusted Christ as your personal Lord, as your Savior, then you need to apply. Apply your faith by trusting Him during the the darkest storms of life. That's the key. What do you know to be true about Him? That is what you have to hold on to. You apply your faith to the situation you're going through. He knows what he's doing. He loves you. He'll give you the strength you need. Remember, the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful, helpful, Lord, magnificent passage from your word. Lord, your word is so eloquent, it's so applicable, it's so pertinent, it's so, it's so real for us, Lord. We go through some storms like this where we don't see any way out. We thank you that even though they are difficult and not pleasant, we thank you for them because there are lessons to learn about trusting you. And I pray for those who are going through storms right now or who will soon have them. We never know what a day will bring. I pray, Lord, that you'll bring these words, these truths to their minds, that they will apply their faith, the faith that you've given them. They'll apply it to life's difficulties, to life's trials, to those dark moments of life. Thank you, Lord, that you have a heart of compassion. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for not only teaching your first disciples this valuable lesson of trusting you, but for teaching us as well. And I pray long after we've left this auditorium, may these words, the truths of this passage ring loud and resonate in our hearts that we might indeed learn from them and apply them. And I pray, Lord, for anybody here or anyone who's watching, if they've never turned to you for salvation, may you grant them repentance and grant them faith and draw them to yourself. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.